Hey, podcast listeners, I just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm changing the format of this podcast. In the past, I've uploaded talks from our meetings at Ratio Christi, Colorado State, but I've decided that most people would rather have three 10-minute segments on various topics. With that in mind, if you still like the old format and content, it will be available on a podcast called Ratio Christi, Colorado State. So make sure to subscribe to that if you want to keep the content in the future. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to the Beard of Disciple podcast. I truly believe that love spoken without truth is not love, and truth spoken without love is not really truth. This week on the Beard of Disciple podcast, we are listening to Matt Graham. He's giving us an introductory crash course to logic. Whenever we're having apologetic discussions, we realize that we need to be able to understand how to form a good argument, how to make sure that we're being clear, concise, but also putting together an argument that makes logical sense. So what is logic? A lot of people don't understand what logic truly is. They haven't been through any sort of training and they don't know why one argument is logical and one argument isn't logical. We're diving into just the very bare bones parts of that argument and parts of an argument to be able to understand how an argument either is logical or illogical. I hope you enjoy. begin with, let's just ask the question, what is logic? What is your common sense notion of what logic is? We have some idea, right? Like what logic might be? Like someone who might watch Star Trek and see Spock and he's like, that's not logical, Captain. Or you might be in a conversation with someone and you're like, oh, that just doesn't logically follow. What's the common sense understanding of logic? Reasoning that doesn't contain any inherent contradictions. Good, yeah, good. Anything else? Well, in that sense, reasoning without emotion. Okay, yeah, people think of logic as being without emotion. And I've, I've heard, oh, yeah. Systematic reasoning. Yeah, systematic reasoning, yep. Yeah, so I think on a lot of occasions, people will just throw out the term logic. Sometimes it's just a generic term that means this just doesn't make sense, right? Like, or that isn't well thought out or something like that. And today I want to talk about logic so that we can kind of have an understanding both of its strength and of its weakness. Because logic is not, uh, logic is not something that is used for everything. Logic doesn't solve all problems. It's kind of, it's very much like math in that all of us know how to do basic arithmetic, but when it starts to get harder and harder math, we, we need instruction and we need help to refine our mathematical skills. It's kind of like that. All of us have some kind of sense of what logic is. You know, we can't contradict ourselves. Um, when we say something is something, we know that it's not, not what we just said it is, right? Uh, but then logic helps us to elaborate on those basic uh, basic notions of rational thought that we have to come up with a more fuller, uh, come up with a fuller, more developed system of logic, okay? But what is logic? Logic has to do with thinking. Oh, man. 
Please tell me my little thing is not going. Oh, man. Sorry. Logic has to do with thinking, right? But not all thinking is rational or logical thinking, okay? So two different types of disciplines can study how we think. The psychologist can study how we think. The logician can study how we think. The sociologist can study how we think, okay? So logic studies one aspect of the way in which we think. Uh, so a psychologist, for example, is concerned with how people think and whether, uh, whether or not that process of thought is reasoned or not. They're concerned with how thinking affects thinking, feeling, and action. They, they're concerned about, or they're concerned about describing how we do, in fact, think, rather than just how we ought to think. Where the logician is concerned with the correctness of the reasoning process. Not just, they're not just interested in describing how we think. They're interested in describing something about how can we think in such a way to come to true conclusions. They're concerned with the truth of your premises and the validity of your arguments, and they prescribe how we ought to think. Again, not just describing the way we do think. Okay. The logician is not interested in mere associations of ideas, but psychologists often are. So if, if uh, you're talking with a psychologist, they might be interested in, why do you get mad when so-and-so brings this topic up? Well, because I associate it with what my parents used to do. And whenever they did that, it really ticked me off, and now I'm getting ticked off. Psychologists are interested in that kind of thing because they're interested in your behavior, right? They're, your motivation for your behavior, that kind of thing. Logicians don't care. Logicians just, they care about... Uh, logical, rational relationships between ideas. Their primary goal is truth, and the primary goal of the psychologist is mental health. Oh, and another thing, psychologist deals with literal, figurative, symbolic meaning, and the logician is primarily concerned about the literal meaning of words. Okay. One good, uh, like a standard text, um, is Irving Copey. Uh, there's, there's other people, Coheen, uh, Peter Kraft is a guy who has a book on Aristotelian logic. There are also di lots of different types of logic. But this is, this is a really good introduction, and it's been a standard text in logic classes for a long, long time. The main thing that logic is, is concerned with is arguments. The building blocks of arguments, how are arguments constructed, how are they put together, and how are, they, how are they put together in such a way as to yield true conclusions? There's debate about this, right? There's some logicians who will tell you that we're not even interested in true conclusions. In fact, a lot of, um, a lot of contemporary logicians might even say, logic doesn't even have to deal with truth. It has to do with formal validity. Validity just has to do with the form of an argument. Is the form of the argument right? not whether or not the premises in the argument are true. But I would say, look, you know, going back to Aristotle, like the point of having a good argument is so that you can arrive at truth. And if you construe logic more broadly, we can, that's what we get when we have good arguments is truth. So an argument, though, is not something like when we're going back and forth and saying, you took my stuff. No, I didn't take your stuff. That's not what an argument is in philosophy or in logic. An argument 
is basically a uh, it's it's a it's a set of sentences such that one of the sentences depend on the truth of the others. Okay. So pre arguments are constructed of premises and a, and a single conclusion. The argument could have two premises, it could have 15 premises, it could have 100 premises, but it has to have one conclusion. And that conclusion has to be arrived at and be, and be based on, rationally, those, pre those premises. Uh, do you guys want to watch a funny video or do you just want to continue on with the content? Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. <coughs> we'll move on. Uh, sorry. So we just talked about what an, what an argument is. Um, it's a set of sentences such that one of them is being said to be said to be true. The other are offered as reasons for believing the truth of the one. And some of the different types of logic are informal logic, informal logic. Okay, we'll get a little bit more into what those mean, um, but those are two broad, broadly speaking types of uh, logic. So, uh, informal logic studies a natural language. So when you guys read a newspaper or you see um, an ad on TV, right? informal logic is the type of logic that you're going to use to pick out fallacies. Fallacies are flaws in thinking in terms of how you arrive at a uh, conclusion, right? So a fallacy is a flaw in your reasoning process. And informal fallacies are those flaws in your thinking process when it comes to forming conclusions in news articles, in uh, books that aren't rigorously formalized, in advertisements and things like that, okay? Formal logic is... Um, Formal logic is more, probably more rigorous. And what it attempts to do is to say, look, we're going to take your argument from everyday speech, and we're going to put it in a really structured format so that we can analyze it more rigorously. That's what formal logic does. So if we have a, a sentence, all men are mortal, uh, or, or a sentence, no humans are dogs, or some comedians are funny, the first thing that the formal logician wants to do is abstract from the sentence some kind of form of the sentence so that we can start to formulate rules for what are called what's called valid inference. Okay? So all men are mortal is translated into a more abstract form of all S is P. No humans are dogs. No S is P, right? And some S is P. So what you can do when you start to take our normal sentences and translate them is that you get a consistent sort of format that you can use to start formulating rigorous rules for determining the, what's called the validity of an argument. Now, the validity of an argument just has to do with, is everything in the right order, right? Are all of these, are the, prop, are the premises in the right order? Are they formatted properly? Right? That's validity. Soundness has to do with are they formatted properly and are the premises true? Okay, does that make sense? Is there any questions up to this point? Is that? What's S and P stand for? 
subject predicate. It could be anything, though. It could be X and Y. It could be whatever. But usually S and P is used for all subjects are predicate. Yep. OK. So uh, sim symbolic logic, again, it tries to really um, come up with an, an almost mathematical rigor in how we do logic. Right? So it actually formalizes even further than what we did before uh, these sentences. P, if P, then Q. That's what this little arrow means. Right? It means implication. If P, then Q. Uh, you could also say P only if Q, and there's another symbol for that. Uh, P if and only if Q, right? So you can start to put these sentences, you can start to abstract from these sentences these formal, uh, these formalizations. Now, when we deal with logic, there are certain types of, we need to think of it in terms of how we deal with sentences, okay? Logic doesn't deal with vague intuitions that are not verbalized, right? Logic deals with stated propositions, but it only deals with a certain kind of stated proposition, right, or certain kinds of sentences. Like, we can't do logic with questions. Where did you go to college? That's not the kind of sentence that logic can even analyze. So questions aren't, you, when someone asks a question, it might be a stupid question, but it's not because it's stupid because it's illogical. Okay, so people don't ask illogical questions unless they build premises into them and they're, they're actually making a, an argument instead of asking a question. But if it's really a question, it's not even something that we deal with in logic. How about commands? Sit down, therefore the universe has a cause. No, we don't, we don't do that. Or exclamation, son of a motherless goat, you know, therefore birth control is okay. Right? No, none of that follows. The only kinds of sentences that we use, again, almost everything I say today is a bit of an overgeneralization, but that's what we do in, in a intro to logic thing, right? So logic deals with declarations. Um, uh, there are people in this room. There's a desk in here. Uh, it's wrong to kill people for fun. It's, uh, it is not 4 o'clock, right? Only declarative sentences are the kinds of sentences that we're going to start uh, putting in our arguments as premises and conclusions. Okay. <clears throat> now, there's different kinds of declarative sentences. And I'm just going to put them all up here. Uh, there are what are called categorical sentences, hypothetical, disjunctive, and conjunctive sentences. These are all different types of declarative sentences. And this is the form that a categorical takes. All P, R, Q, hypothetical, if P, then Q, disjunctive, either P or Q, conjunctive, both, both P and Q. Okay? So that's the form that these are always going to take. And I should take a little bit of a step back. When we talk in everyday plain language, um, we need to know that when we start putting things into logical format, uh, we are going to have to, a lot of times, wrench the language a little bit out of maybe the context that we would have in, a, in the English language. Because we have to try to fit our, our statements into these formats in order to put together a formal argument of some sort. 
There's lots of stuff that goes on when you do that. But we need to just, just uh, realize that in order to put together a formalized argument, we need to state things in a, in a particular way in order to uh, be able to evaluate that argument to see if it's valid and sound. Okay, are you guys still good? Okay. All right, so categorical, all A's are B's. If Hypothetical, if A then B. Disjunctive, either A or B. Conjunctive, both A and B. Now, the last point to make is declarative sentences, when we're, when we're dealing with logic, are either true or false. They're not partly true, not partly false. They're just, they're either true or false, okay? Parts of a uh, declarative sentence now. So we, we're kind of, if, if you see what we're doing here, we're getting more and more formalized, and we're starting to name the different parts of propositions so that we can start to construct sort of a grammar of how to do logic, okay? So this, this sentence here, all men are mortal. What kind of statement, is, what kind of declarative sentence is that? We've talked about categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive, and conjunctive. Categorical, good. All. All men are mortal. Um, all willful actions are subject to moral evaluation. So these are both categorical statements. Now, in here we talked about all A's are B's. <clears throat> the all here can be all, some, or none in a categorical, what's called a categorical syllogism. That's, that's another term, sorry. Syllogism is just a deductive argument with premises and a conclusion. Okay, and a deductive argument is an argument that if the premises are true, the conclusion necessarily follows. And what's, there's another kind of argument, an inductive argument, that's a tends to be a probable. It is a probabilistic argument. So you might that's typically what you think of when you think of science. You go out and you make lots and lots of observations, and then you make some kind of generalization from those observations. Whereas uh, with a deductive argument, you're actually making claims. Uh, well, that's not always true, but you're, you're making claims that if, if these claims are true, then the conclusion necessarily follows. It's not just probably following, it, it necessarily follows. Okay? Still so far so good? Okay. <clears throat> so, in a categorical proposition, right, all men are mortal, there's what's called the quantifier. And this quantifier can be all, some, or none. There's a copula, which is always a form of the word be. It's is, are, whatever. <clears throat> and then you have your terms, men and mortal. And in the categorical subject, you have what's called a major and a minor term. But at least for now, you just need to know you have a quantifier, terms, and a copula. Okay. Abstracted, this is all S is P. So now we get to the building blocks, right? We set, we set up this um, sentences have terms, and then um, arguments are made of sentences. Right? So those are the building blocks. Terms, sentences, and then arguments. Terms can be 
ambiguous or unambiguous, clear or unclear, exact or vague, univocal, analogical, equivocal, literal, metaphorical, positive or negative, simple or complex, universal, particular, single, collective, divisive, absolute or relative, concrete or abstract. And there's a few others that I didn't put on here. But when, we, when we're thinking of these terms, those are the kinds of categories that we can use to think about terms. Is the term ambiguous or unambiguous? Is the term clear or unclear? Is the term exact or vague? Is, it, is the term univocal, analogical, equivocal, right? <clears throat> Again, I know you don't necessarily know what these mean, but I'm, I'm trying to just kind of build out like a grammar here. So when we talk about ambiguous, the term should have one meaning. Uh, exact, it should be specific. Univocal, analogical, equivocal, the term needs to be the same like or different, well, it needs to be the same. In other words, the terms in our argument, if we use the term men in one way here, we need to use it the same way in, in another premise or in the conclusion, well, in, in the conclusion. We need to use it the same way in the conclusion as we used in the premise. Otherwise, it's fallacious. That's bad reasoning. Okay, so those are terms. And terms can also be distributed or undistributed. So a term is distributed when all of the members, uh, a term is distributed if it's universal or if everything that we're talking about in that class is referred to in that term. So uh, if I say all conservatives are X, but I only mean a subset of conservatives, then that term is conservative is actually undistributed, not distributed, because I'm not referring to all conservatives. Does that make sense? If I'm speaking about all ducks, but actually I'm, if I use the term all ducks, but I'm actually speaking about a subset of ducks, then those, then I'm speaking about, I'm using that term in a way that's undistributed rather than distributed. You might, you might, you'd have to infer it. You'd have to say, like if I'm going to give an argument, <clears throat> All conservatives, I don't know why I've got this in my head, but no, oh, let's do this one, since we have the predestination free will. All, all Calvinists believe that God chooses you apart from your will, right? Um, you would have to know something outside of that to know that they're just wrong in the way they're using that term, right? Like we would say, no, we, we, ha we know something about Calvinism, namely that there are different varieties, and not all of them hold to this. So you're actually, even if you think you're referring to all, you're actually referring to a subset of Calvinists. So it may not be in the argument that you know that. It may be actually just from your knowledge of the term that they're using. Like you said, all conservatives are humans. people. Yeah, that would be distributed, right? Yeah, so the, in that case we know, but that you don't necessarily know that from the terms themselves. You know something about reality, right? Like only humans can have political views, right? So it's for you to judge as you're reading it whether it's distributed or undistributed. Is that what you're saying? In a lot of cases, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were saying that they were purposefully using it that way. You're saying usually when they say all such and such, and they're wrong about that. Yeah, yeah. Because they're limited knowledge, not because they're doing it on purpose. Typically, yep. Yep. Yeah, great, great point. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so that's why it's actually tricky sometimes that when we formulate an argument, a lot of times philosophers will have to bounce their arguments off of other philosophers so that they can that they can make sure, am I, am I referring to, am I making, is my term distributed here? I think it is, but I'm not entirely sure, okay, you know. The goal is to make it distributed. If you're going to use the word all, your goal in writing an argument is to be correct about it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you definitely want to be, yep, yep. Now, we, we use the terms distributed and undistributed. It's easier to... We just need to know what it means to be distributed, what it means to not be distributed, in terms of our being able to point out fallacious arguments. You know, so we can say, if it is in fact distributed in the premise and not distributed in the conclusion, well then we know that's fallacious and your argument's not a good argument. But whether or not that term is in fact distributed or not may be something that you debate. You know. Yeah, great point. So, uh, I start with Aristotle's logic because I think that it's, a, it's, where our, it's where logic started. I mean, imagine if there wasn't logic and there was no one around to teach you. You're just like, you know what? I'm going to make up the discipline of logic. Like, who does that? Aristotle. Aristotle does that. <laughs> That's how brilliant this guy was. It's kind of like Isaac Newton's like, yeah, this math doesn't work. I'm going to develop calculus. Like, People, I mean, these guys are freaking brilliant. Where's my drink? Oh, over here. <laughs> yeah. Who am I again? I can't remember. <laughs> so if you guys went, if you guys go to CSU and you take a, lo a formal logic class, here's how it's going to start. <clears throat> it's going to start by you going in there and they're going to say, hey, here's a bunch of sentences. I want you to translate those sentences into a more uh, formalized form. And then I want you to be able to apply the rules of logic to tell me what, about validity, right? The validity of this argument. That's how they're going to do logic. Because typically what they've done is they've, they've taken logic out of the realm of philosophy and almost made it into like math is what they're trying to do, because they like the rigor. They like the, the formalized structure. You can be super rigorous about it. But what they tend to sacrifice, and they'll even admit it uh, a lot of times, is they tend to sacrifice your ability to use logic to determine what's true. Like, I'll tell you if it's valid or not, but whether or not it's true, that's, you know, that's for the specialist to tell you kind of thing. Aristotle had a more holistic view of logic. <clears throat> and he tied logic to acts of the intellect or acts of the mind, right? He had, some way, he had a way of viewing how the mind operates, and he built his system of logic off of that. So he says, look, in, the intellect has three acts. Right? The first act is the formation of a concept. The second act is, the the is where you predicate something of something else, a pre uh, uh, predicate, uh, what color is this thing? Wood color of the table. Right? This table is wood colored. Right? That's a judgment. And then you would take judgments and formulate uh, arguments from that, so, or, or deductions. Okay? That's, and this corresponds to what we talked about with terms, sentences, and arguments. Okay? So the three acts of the intellect 
our act of abstracting tableness from the table or humanness from the person, right? That's the first act of the intellect. The second act is, now I know something about the person. Uh, Let's say, Alan is tired, right? Something like that. That's a judgment. And now I can make, put those judgments into a form to formulate an argument. Okay. So what we see is, again, term, proposition, argument. <clears throat> the linguistic expression, so there's all these corollary uh, principles that, are, that we can lay out that correspond to term, proposition, and argument. So when we're just talking about a linguistic expression, and we're talking about a term, we're talking about a word or a phrase. Because in logic, a term doesn't necessarily mean one word. It just means the subject part of the sentence, right? Not the quantifier or the copula, but the subject. Uh, so it could be a word or phrase. The proposition is always a declarative sentence, and the argument is a paragraph. If we're talking about the structural parts, a term doesn't have any structural parts. It's the basic unit, right, in, a, in an argument. Proposition is a subject predicate, and then argument is premise conclusion. Questions answered. The term, what is it? Proposition, whether it is, and then argument, why it is. Uh, yeah, some of this is kind of getting into metaphysics. So what to ask, did, how, when, you're, when you're trying to understand what the terms, propositions, and arguments are, what you would ask is, how do you define your terms? First thing you do, define your terms, state your conclusion, and then prove it with an argument. The state, when you state your conclusion, you're giving the conclusion of your argument, and then you're proving it is offering the premises for your argument. So whenever you're trying to do logic, first thing you want to do is, what's your conclusion? It seems maybe a little counterintuitive. What are your reasons first? But first thing is state forth, or state forth, clearly state what is the conclusion that you're trying to come to, right? Okay, now what are the reasons, and now I can follow what those reasons are, plug those into some kind of argument and formula and try to evaluate the validity of that argument. Okay? <clears throat> all right, so all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. What kind of argument is that? In terms of the, remember we talked about four different types of propositions, and a syllogism is defined by the types of propositions that are in it. And we said there's categorical, hypothetical, disjunctive, and conjunctive. So what kind of argument is this? Awesome. And then this one. That's what kind of argument is that? Disjunctive, right, because it's got either or. Why is that important? Because there's certain rules for how you tell a fallacious categorical argument, or categorical syllogism. And there's different rules for how you determine whether or not if a hypothetical, wait, disjunctive, wow, disjunctive syllogism is true or false, okay? So you need to know the type of argument in order to know what rules to apply to it, okay? <clears throat> All right, so here's our extra, first exercise. Okay, we talked about what an argument is. We talked about the building blocks of an argument. We talked about trying to abstract the form and that kind of stuff, the argument, to, to get to the structure of the argument. And we talked about the structure of the argument deals with the validity of the argument and the truth of the premises it has to do with the soundness of the argument. Okay? 
But let's see if we can even identify an argument, because not everything that we say is actually an argument. Okay, so how about this one? Since Manchester is north of Oxford and Edinburgh is north of Manchester, Edinburgh is north of Oxford. Is that an argument? Yes. Why? What's my conclusion? Good. Yep. And sometimes we can pick up on like just even words in the sentence, right? Since, so kind of like it because, right? And there's no therefore here, but we can infer that. We can imply that, right? Witches float because witches are made of wood and wood floats. <laughs> Is that an argument? What's the conclusion? Good. And we, th in this case, we have a very clear because, right? So we have the conclusion, and then because this, okay? Since Jesse James left town, taking his gang with him, things have been a lot quieter. No? Okay. Not a, you think yes? What's the what would be the conclusion if it is an argument? Is the town a lot quieter because of something? Sense is like using the time. I'm reading it as since that time that Jesse James has left town. Yep. Not sense is in like because. Yes. But I guess <laughs> it could mean because you need more context. Right, you do. Yeah, I, I don't think we can. I don't think we can say this is an argument, even though it kind of seems like one. One of the things that uh, we need to be careful of, too, is when we're talking about arguments, the because is not causal, right? It's a rational because. This is the reason this is true. This is not the cause of its truth. This is the reason for its truth. There's a distinction there. It's a very subtle distinction, and it's not clear or obvious or easy to begin with. But we need to make that distinction. So this one, towards lunchtime, clouds formed and the sky blackened, then the storm broke. No? Good. Yeah, no, that is not an argument. But it is kind of causal, right? They're kind of ex explaining towards lunchtime, clouds formed, the sky blackened. They might be stating that this is the cause, possibly. But there's no rational uh, dependency of this. Uh, like, this isn't a conclusion, and this, the reasons for that conclusion, right? It seems like it's a series of steps, though. Yep. Yeah, it's actually a narrative about just telling you what happened. Not, not, a, uh, not, a sent, not a conclusion that has premises that are justifying the truth of that conclusion. Is that? I need you to say that thing again that you said. Because isn't causal? Yeah. I feel like I need to see that written down. <laughs> it's, it's not the reasons for something. So, yeah, go ahead. It's the reasons for something in an argument. Right. So if I explain. <laughs> she wrote it down. Oh, okay. All right. She, I think you're talking fast. Sorry. <laughs> like no, and if I, need to, if I need to slow down or if I need to cover something better, believe me, I totally understand. I will do that because I'm not even sure what I'm saying up here right now. I'm Okay. Uh, categorical. Metamortal. 
all right, this is just a, we can probably go, go through this pretty quick. Um, this is just a categorical proposition, and I wanted to, I guess I have this highlighted so you know the different parts real quick, and then just different examples, right? You got a categorical, this is a categorical proposition, all men are mortal. This is also a categorical proposition, or categorical, yeah, categorical propositions. No humans are argument, are dogs. And then some comedians are funny, some evil actions are to be tolerated. Right, so the thing that's changed here is the what? Do you guys remember what this part is called? Quantifier. Quantifier, awesome. Yep. And it just tells you all, some, or none. And some has a, has a specific meaning, too. Some doesn't mean, you know, about three, about five. Right? Some means anything from one to 99. Right? Some means it could be one member in the class, or it could be up to one less than everything in that class. Yeah? Does it have to be these three words, or can you use other words like many, almost all, a few? Well, in, in regular language, we, we do that. But then if we try to evaluate it formally, we have to translate it into one of those three. Okay, so then if when we have that, though, the nice thing about it, oh, and then this is, I think, this is probably easy for you guys. <laughs> God is love. All God is love. Kind of, this is actually what we were just talking about. God is love. Well, is that a categorical? If we're going to evaluate it, we need to put it in the right form. And what we mean is all God is love. Now, if we don't mean that, well, then we need to formally state that we don't mean all God is love. Okay. A few people are intrinsically evil. Some people are intrinsically evil. Wow, my next slide was like exactly what you <laughs> asked. Most people like to eat chicken. Some people are those which eat chicken. And chickens are not dogs. No chickens are dogs. Okay. Uh, there was some reason for that, and I'm trying to remember what that was. Um, it would be because you have to use the, the copula. It has to be some form of to be. You can't use any other verbs. Yeah, yeah. I have to use the, that as a copula. And I think there was some kind of ambiguity. I remember when I was writing it out. There was some kind of ambiguity that I was trying to avoid. They eat. <laughs> Maybe they eat it without liking it. <laughs> uh, most people like to eat chicken. Some people are. Some people are, yeah, you know what, maybe in this case it probably is the, the copula. I thought there was an ambiguity in there too. It's been since 2017 since I did this, so I, I don't know if I can remember exactly. Um, but I, the, I guess the main point is, is that um, when we formulate these into sentences to evaluate, we do have to change them to be more precise. Now, there's some things about that that may actually drop some of the subtle meaning in our, in our English sentence, right? There may be subtleties in our English sentence that are not going to be captured in, when we translate it like this. And that's kind of a worry because it might, because the sentence you translate it into may not fully convey the meaning that you intend to express with your normal English sentence. So 
the more skillful you are at translating these sentences, the more likely you are to capture the meaning. But there's always that possibility that you're not capturing quite the full meaning. Like when we have a, and that's why I think a lot of times when we use an English sentence, we're like, we can say something like, well, you're partly true, partly not true, or partly not right, or, or something like that. But that's, that's the precisely the kind of thing we have to avoid if we're doing logic, because re logic relies on that precision. Yeah. Um, so like the first sentence, will all singular subject sentences sound really weird? Like because say, like you said, Bob is male, right? Like you say all Bob is right, male. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So it'll just sound It weird. sounds weird. It'll sound weird with a singular subject, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it sounds weird, but it's, it's more technically precise. Yeah. So, again, just a review. We have a quantifier, all SSP, no SSP, some SSP. Um, and then what we do is we have, we can now formulate this, this abstraction, and to start to formulate formal rules of logic, formulating formal rules of logic, right? Because there's only four possibilities with these kinds of propositions, with the, with the quantifiers that we're using, right? All SSP no S is P, some S is P, some S is not P. So that formulates into, we then assign a type to each, a letter to each one of these, A, E, I, O. And now we can form a square of, what's called a square of opposition. Okay, if we have an A type sentence and an E type sentence and an I type sentence and an O type sentence, we can now define the logical relationships between those types of propositions. Awesome, right? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a open theist guy who actually tried to come up with a and like two more um, with uh, counterfactuals claims and put that in there. He killed it. The, the, thinking outside of the square of opposition box or something like that. And uh, so we got, so in this case, we have two propositions are contradictory if they cannot both be true and they cannot both be false, right? So contradictories are A and O. So contradictory, every S is P, some S is not P. Contradictory, some S is P, no S is P. Those are contradictories. Two propositions are contraries if they cannot both be true but can both be false. Two propositions are subcontraries if they cannot both be false but can both be true. Proposition is a subaltern of another if it must be true, if it's super, if it's super altern is true. And the super altern must be false if the subaltern is false. I'll give you guys a PowerPoint and you guys can kind of go through that. Or read Socratic Logic or Copy or something like that. Has, definitely has all this stuff in it if you guys want to dive into that more. At least, and the big picture here is, do you guys see what we're doing, right? Do you, we're going from English sentences to what? What are, we, what are we doing? We're taking English sentences. What are we doing and why? Taking English sentences and converting it into a more mathematical type expression so that I can easily analyze. Exactly. That's what we're trying to do. Because now once, we have a, a, now once we have a distinct set, a specified set number of types of propositions, 
and forms for propositions, now we can start to formulate precise rules on how to evaluate those things. Okay? English language, if we just talk like that, that's what informal logic is for, is to evaluate those kinds of propositions. But there's all sorts of ambiguities in how we use language. We use metaphor, we use figurative language, we use similes, we use, sometimes we, when we joke around, we say things we don't actually mean. Logic wants to cut out all that stuff and be very boring so it can be precise. All right, I only have a couple more sides on formal logic and then we'll get into informal logic. So, we saw those rules, uh, we saw the rules that we can formulate from here, right? We've, we standardized the format of sentences so that we came up with A, E, I, and O type sentences and then said what those logical relationships are. But we can also take um, and convert the order of, of uh, a statement and still have a logical equivalence so that the rules still apply. So, for example, William Lane Craig gives the moral argument in uh, if the P then Q, right? That's his argument. Uh, or if God exists, then objective moral values and duties exist. God exists, therefore objective moral values and duties exist. He actually converts this argument. It's still valid, but you can do a legitimate conversion by saying if objective male moral values and duties do not exist, God does not exist. Second premise, God exists. And the conclusion is, therefore, objective moral, no, objective moral values and duties exist. And the conclusion is, therefore, God exists. OK, so he converts the order of uh, the subject and predicate in a, what's called, in a logically valid way. And logically speaking, it's the same thing. It's, it's completely valid. OK, yes, no, OK. I'm just going to skip through that. Just, again, to give you an example, rules for categorical syllogism. Those are all, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Okay? It's categorical syllogism. The rules, are, the, the fallacies for, the, for a categorical, categorical syllogism are undistributed middle, illicit major, illicit minor, uh, excluded premises, and the existential fallacy. So, Notice when we talk about these rules, what we're talking about. The middle term must be distributed at least once. So we need to know what the middle term is. We know what terms are, so now we need to learn what's, what the middle term is and, know, and then know whether or not that term is distributed once to know whether or not this fallacy is committed. If the term is distributed in the conclusion, then it must be distributed in the premise. That's a fallacy of illicit major or minor, depending on whether the, term is, the, the major term is distributed in the premise and the conclusion or the minor term. Is distributed in the premise and in the conclusion will determine whether or not it's an uh, illicit major and illicit minor. Two negative premises are not allowed, called exclusive premises. If you do, you commit the exclusive premises fallacy. And if both premises are universal, the conclusion cannot be particular. Otherwise, you're committing the existential fallacy. We're not going to get all of that, right? Like, you've got to go back and read some stuff to to kind of think through that, unless you've already had some kind of training in logic or read something on it. Uh, I'm basically just tell, giving you an example of how you would do this. Does that make sense so far? OK. But we're just not going to do that. OK. All right, now the more fun ones. 
informal fallacies, right? We just talked about the formal fallacies. And I was in the South for 16 years, so I feel like I, I have like a redneck card or whatever that I can make redneck jokes and stuff like that. Okay, we talked about we talked about the form, right? We would take an argument and can solve puzzles. Apes can solve puzzles, therefore apes are intelligent. And we just talked about what we would do is we'd take and say, if A then B, B therefore A, right? Um, so what we're doing with informal fallacies is we're looking at commercials, newspaper clippings, and that kind of stuff, and trying to understand what is the basis, what is the conclusion of their argument, and then what's the basis of their argument, and does it follow logically? So in formal logic, we're like jerks. Like, you need to conform your language fit into my mold of the logical structures so that I can evaluate it. In informal logic, we're trying to take what you, your sentence as, as close to the English way of putting it and then maybe formalize it a little bit to try and understand if your conclusion follows from your premise. But even in informal logic, we're always talking about premises and conclusions or Justification, and then the conclusion that you're arriving at from that justification. Okay? So if someone's making just a claim with no conclusion, I, I've seen this a lot, like on, on news or uh, where someone will say, oh, your argument for, uh, for abortion is X. Uh, and, and, and it's just a single sentence that that like in some of our sentences before doesn't have a conclusion or it's not even a it's it's not even a reason for the conclusion that they're giving so in a, you have to even in informals you at least informal fallacies and informal arguments you still have to have premises and a conclusion uh, let's see okay so i know you think the numbers on the end of the year report have been fudged, but they are right. If you don't agree, you should start looking for another job. Okay, so this first claim, is this, is that an argument? How about the second one? People who think abortions should be illegal are dim-witted morons who support the patriarchy, so you can't take their arguments seriously. Is that an argument? Why? What's the conclusion? You can't take their arguments seriously. And their reasons? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes these things tricky is because a lot of the times the arguments aren't, it's sometimes hard. A lot of people uh, start with informal fallacies, right? Newspaper clippings, what's the fallacy? But they're actually the more difficult ones to, to identify. They're maybe even easier to understand, but they're the more difficult ones to identify because there's ambiguities in the language that you're reading all the time. 
or there's implicit, there's implicit propositions or uh, things that are assumed that aren't stated explicitly. So it's hard to tell, like, what, what's the actual justification for your argument? Um, so yeah, I, I, they're more, they might be more fun, but they're actually a little bit more tricky. Belief in God comes from people's psychological fear of death and longing for an omnipotent father figure. So we need to not take theistic claims as literally true claims. Argument? Argument? Okay. Um, Actually, there's a sense in which the first one is an argument. But this is why form, informal fallacies are so... So, so tricky because you kind of have to read into things and you could be wrong what you read into it. Um, I know you think you know the numbers are at the end of your, 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 oh my gosh. I think, I know you think the numbers on the end of your report have been fudged, right? That's what this other person thinks. His assertion is, but they are right. The con that's the conclusion. They are right. But the response is, if you don't agree, you should start looking for another job, right? As if this is almost another reason for saying they're right. So this is, in fact, a kind of argument. It's just a lot, it's not nearly as clear, to, easy to see. And this one actually commits what's called an ad baculum fallacy. It's one of the best fallacies ever. Agree with me or I'll beat the crap out of you. That's the bad baculum fallacy. <laughs> or I'll fire you, or whatever. And the supposed reason is, for believing me, is or else. All right? That's why that's tricky, because it's not really a rational reason. So if we're doing formal logic, we wouldn't really even con probably consider that an argument. But in informal logic, we, we, we read into, uh, we tend to read into the, the claim more. We have to, because we have to kind of we have to sort out what they're trying to say and if they're actually making a claim and then trying to support it in some way. Yeah? Maybe I missed this, but why are you calling them informal fallacies? They're informal. So when we talked about formal fallacies, I was, I'm trying to contrast formal fallacies with informal fallacies. And the formal fallacies are we, we make all of our arguments explicit. Remember how we had to take a sentence and then formulate it into the form? of the, the sentence and the argument, that's what makes it a formal logic, is that we're formalizing the language into a structure that's more easily analyzable. And the kinds of rules that we deal with in formal logic are very, very precise. And typically, uh, I'm trying to think, typically starts with deductive. Does that help at all, or? So you're saying that by breaking the syllogism rules, that is a formal fallacy. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. The would, would an invalid argument be considered a formal fallacy then, or is that different? An invalid argument would be a deductive argument that is that is fallacious. Okay. Did I just say that right? Yeah. So if you have a deductive argument, like we went through those four fallacies of a categorical syllogism. If that syllogism commits any of those fallacies, the existential fallacy, the illicit major, illicit minor, whatever, 
then, then that, that argument is invalid. Might even have a true conclusion, right? Like the, tr the conclusion might be true in the form of the argument invalid. But logic is we have to go through the steps. We have to formalize the sentence, make sure that it uh, follows the proper rules for validity, and then we argue for the truth of the premises to, to determine whether or not the conclusion is true or not. Does that make sense? With informal fallacies, they're not formal. The arguments aren't formal. They're not stated in these precise formats. All A's are B's, right? All B's are C's, therefore all A's are C's. They're not stated in that format. They're stated in formats like, it was clear from his comments that the Trump administration was trying to usher in a new Nazi party which controlled by fear and takes away freedom and all that kind of stuff. That's the kind of, that's the kind of claim that we're trying to analyze in an informal argument. Right, but why are you calling it a fallacy? Because it doesn't follow, right? Are these just informal arguments? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are, this slide here is just to identify the argument. Is this, are these sentences, are these things arguments or not in any form, in any shape or form? And I'm, I'm saying, yes, they are informally arguments. But none of these are stated in all SSP, right? Which part? It says informal fallacies on this fallacy. Oh, I'm sorry. That's what you should do. <laughs> They're just informal arguments. I, uh, this is clearly false. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. So I, I put two PowerPoints together over the weekend, and I missed that. I'm sorry. Okay. Thank you. I'm, that is, I apologize. OK, any other questions about my, my misleading title? Or, <laughs> sorry. All right, so here's an example of what we might do. We could try to convert these claims into more formalized forms. Belief in God comes from people's psychological fear of death and longing for an omnipotent father figure. So we need to not take theistic claims as literally, claims as literally true claims. We could take that argument and do, like, do the formal analysis of that argument and say all beliefs in God are explainable in terms of psychology all beliefs are explainable in terms of psychology are literally false. Therefore, all beliefs in God are literally false. And you could formalize that to all A or B, all B or C, therefore all A or C. Right? That's one way of analyzing the, even these newspaper clipping type arguments. You can do that. But typically when we, uh, when we analyze them, it's less structured when we're doing informal fallacies. Can any of you, do any of you know any examples of informal fallacies? Straw man, yeah. So the straw man fallacy, this is an informal fallacy where it looks at a newspaper clipping and says, you know what, you have, you have basically characterized someone's position as this, you refuted that position, and you've concluded that their actual position is false. But their actual position is not what you said it is. Okay, so this is what's called building a straw man. You build a... a uh, a characterization of someone's view, you destroy it, and then assume that their real view is destroyed. And as if their real view is not the way you characterized it, then you've just defeated what's called a straw man, and that's a, an informal fallacy. It's a fallacious way of arguing. But that kind of 
thing that we do is very different from what we just talked about, right? Do you guys kind of see the difference in, in what we're doing? It doesn't take anywhere near as much analysis to do these informal fallacies. Um, all we need to know is that the argument you just presented and destroyed is not the argument that I hold, therefore you committed the straw man fallacy. Okay? You don't have to symbolize things and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yep. You do. So what we see is that these informal fallacies, they may lack the precision of the more formal fallacies or formal, formal arguments, or the informal arguments lack the precision of it, right? But in real everyday life, those are the kinds of claims that we're typically dealing with more often. Hardly anybody symbolizes their sentences for you and puts them in proper deductive form. So even though it's less precise, it's probably more of what you'll use. So we could do something like this, and it's probably good to do that every once in a while. I know it's a good, uh, especially if you're in a debate with someone who's studied some logic, you, maybe you should do that. So it might be just as simple as pointing out uh, that just because you can offer a psychological explanation for a belief, it doesn't follow that that's the only reason for the belief. So you, Freud, just you need to offer more reasons for thinking that the only reasons you have for belief in, in a god is some kind of longing for an omnipotent father figure. Okay? Might be pointing out an informal fallacy might be just that simple. What fallacy is that? Yeah. Genetic fallacy. The origin of it. You're basically arguing, because I can explain where the idea comes from, or where your belief comes from, therefore your belief itself is wrong. Yeah. You can argue to explain where my belief comes from, but I mean, my belief is wrong. Right. The reason I should know why my belief is wrong. Yeah, like, I can't remember who it was. It was some guy who came up with a hydrogen atom or something, like the model for the hydrogen had a dream about a serpent eating its tail or something like that. Oh, that's for benzene ring. Oh, is it benzene ring? OK. It's like, well, you can't say that he's wrong because he had a dream about it, right? You, that may not serve as good grounds for, you know, for coming to that conclusion. Um, but it's not, his conclusion isn't necessarily wrong because that's the way he came, arrived at it. So, Unlike formal arguments, informal arguments are sometimes hard to identify. I already said that. But they need to have premise conclusions. I already said that. Okay. Ah. And I do kind of want to show you these real quick if, if I can get them to play, because they're super funny. But they're good examples of informal fallacies. Darn it, PowerPoint. Maybe if I go over here and press play. Yeah, that's what it is. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. I, I love these commercials just because they're like intentionally like using fallacies as like advertising ploys. It's just hilarious. 
All right, we'll come back to, you can maybe guess which one you think that fallacy that is. Where's my mouse? Oh, no, 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 come back. Here's another one. DirecTV has been rated number one in customer satisfaction over cable for 17 years running. But some people still like cable, just like some people like banging their head on a low ceiling. Drinking spoiled milk, camping in poison ivy, getting a paper cut, and having their arm trapped in a vending machine. But for everyone else, there's DirecTV. For number one rated customer satisfaction over cable, switch to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. That paper cut makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> I know this. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> All right. Oh, this doesn't work out very about that. Okay. All right. Does anyone need a break or like we're, we don't have that much more time? But I also just keep going. Go for it. Just keep going. All right. Just keep swimming. What is wrong with me today? There we go. All right. So there are different cat categories or classes of informal fallacies. There's fallacies of relevance, fallacies of weak induction, fallacies of presumption, fallacies of ambiguity, fallacies of grammatical analogy, and more. I mean, this is just a sampling. Right? There are a lot of informal fallacies. Basic structure of the fallacies of rele relevance is premises are logically irrelevant to the conclusion but seem psychologically relevant. Okay, so there's that appeal to force at baculum. Remember, that's the one that we talked about. You know, accept my conclusion or else. There's an appeal to pity. Accept my conclusion because if you don't, we'll all be very sad. Or there's some sad thing that's going to happen, and, it, and it'll be because you didn't accept my conclusion. Okay, so that's an appeal to pity. Appeal to the people. Accept this, otherwise you'll be like these stupid people who bang their heads on walls and drink bad milk and do that kind of stuff. You don't want to be like them. Argument against the person. Uh, don't listen to Noah because he's a jerk face. Right? All his arguments are bad because he's a meanie head. Right? Or, here's one that might be more common, uh, Mr. So-and-so's argument is false because he doesn't have a PhD in this area. Right? Maybe they're not an authority. But it doesn't follow that their argument is false. It could actually be a good argument. Well, what, could it be the other way, too? Like, do listen to Noah because he's such a nice guy? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, straw man we talked about. Red herring is an argument. Do I have these? Oh, I actually have these. I'm <laughs> it's probably good that we go through them fast anyway because we don't have that much time. Um, Ooh, yeah, Richard Dawkins, that's a great one. Richard Dawkins says there isn't a God, but he's a vile, self-absorbed, sinful, stinky little man. So it's clear that his opinion on this matter is false. You know, you might feel that way about him, but it's an ad hominem attack to say that his arguments are false because he's a stinky little man. Uh, against the person ad hominem, or circumstantial. So in other words, Joe, Joe thinks the merger is a good idea for the company, but he personally stands to gain a lot of money if we go through with it gain, okay? He might. He might not. We don't know. Do you mean to say Joe twice? Yes. 
Yes. Yes. Don't ever let me teach again. I'm doing a terrible job here tonight. Uh, this one's used a lot. Again, argument against the, the person. You can't tell me that drugs is wrong because you do drugs all the time. Right? A big one, uh, I remember talking with my sister-in-law, and she's like, you don't, you, your arguments against abortion are, you can't even make arguments against abortion because you're a man. Uh, that's actually a different fallacy, but yeah. I'm telling you guys, seriously, I am running on caffeine fumes this night. All right, we talked about the uh, straw man. Red herring, so we didn't talk about that. So red herring comes from uh, the sort of hunting term that used to where uh, people would drag a red herring across the, uh, the path to throw off the scent of dogs, right? So uh, what a red herring argument is basically you're going to make an assertion and then someone is going to come up with some irrelevant uh, claim that seems related but it's not, in fact not. And then, and then suppose that their claim has been justified, their conclusion is justified. Okay, they actually take you on a diversionary line of reasoning or conclusion or something like that and then conclude that, uh, that they're actually right when they actually never established the truth of their claim. Fallacies of weak induction. So we've got appeal to unqualified authority, appeal to ignorance, hasty generalizations, false conclusions, slippery slope, and weak analogy. So he, Ross, said that Hebrew's word for yom in the first chapters of Genesis should be taken as long periods of time, so when you say Yom refers to a 24-hour period, you're simply mistaken. Now, is he Ross an authority? Oh, right. He is an authority, but right, not on that. The dude's got a postdoctoral degree from Caltech in astrophysics. Like he's, he's a totally legit authority when it comes to astrophysics. But if you're going to appeal to him when he comes to biblical exegesis, he is not an appropriate authority. So you can't just cite any authority as justification for your claim. It has to be an authority in that area, right? So if you're going to ask somebody in this room about molecular biology, the only person you can really ask and appeal to authority is Jessie. She's got a PhD in molecular biology, right? That's an appropriate authority. Yeah. Um, I know we, we tend to use degrees a lot to convey appropriate authoritiveness. Mm -hmm. Is that necessarily justified? Well, it's not the, <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's possible that the authority is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Authorities, even in their own field, disagree. Sure, it was more um, what makes the person an unqualified authority. Why does having a degree, like just simply having a degree, like automatically make you a qualified authority? Well, in, in general, it's because it's not like some, it's not like a, it's not like a universal principle, right? Sure. It depends on the type of authority, right? Like, it's not just necessarily a degree. It could be, am I a legitimate authority to speak about this particular event? Okay. Well, I witnessed it, so yeah. Sure. You know. So is authoritativeness nebulous, sort of? It's not determined by one specific criteria. Okay. Well, then can right. this claim, like, Like you, you couldn't. It would be illegitimate for you to cite Hugh Ross's exegetical terms 
and then conclude you're, uh, you're right because he said it, because he's not an appropriate authority in that. Fa in that. Then, then he is appealing to, and, and the grounds for your claim would be on the basis of the, the authority that he's citing. So you don't say he, Ross, said yam, therefore yam means uh, uh, yam doesn't refer to a 24-hour period or something like that. That would, be, that would be an appeal to inappropriate authority. But that's why you need to read the footnotes, right? Who does, who does he cite? Then you cite that person as an authority, a legitimate authority in that field. So, oh. I, I would think of it as, as you're writing a paper, like if I were to try to cite him, if I'm writing a paper on Holders versus Niemeyer, and I cited Hugh Ross in the paper talking about Jung, my professor is going to be like, he's not an authority on that subject. Mm -hmm. It might even be a legit claim to be making, but I need to be resourcing R.C. Sproul or someone who's actual biblical authority for that. I can use Hugh Ross. he's giving the trail to you that ideally you, where you read it, you'll find the trail, but that's why you need to refer to people. Right, but if I'm making the appeal, I need to appeal to the source that's actually the authority, not to someone who also appeals to that authority. Mm -hmm. And you need as direct to the source as possible, just like you would if you were writing the paper. Yep. Yeah. What if Say you don't have a PhD in biblical studies, but you've spent 10 years studying it on your own, reading the academic sources, uh, and you're familiar with all the primary literature. Could you then be considered an adequate authority? I, I mean, I think you could, because there's no, there's no necessarily like, like it, like with Alan, I was saying like, there's, it's not like, there's this set criteria for who's a legitimate authority in logic itself. That's something that we know by other means. We just, like, logic doesn't dictate what an authority is in any field or area, right? That's, that's something that we bring into it. Is this person a real authority on these matters? And how do you know them? Just, how do you know this that's, particular person hasn't studied this a lot on his own? You don't. So that's, that's what's tricky about this is, and that's what's tricky about all informal fallacies. That's why I don't like them as much. I mean, they're, they're they have value. But I, I, I prefer a more strict and rigorous logical analysis, which this kind of stuff, unfortunately, just doesn't let you do. This is more like if you're on a radio show and you're trying to respond to somebody, these are very helpful for that kind of thing. Because you can point out and say, look, that person's not an authority in this area. Now, but is it possible that they're right? Being, are you kind of doing a fallacy if you do that? Are you propagating illogical things to say? So that is a possibility. But in general, what they could say is, I could say something like, appeal, I know that that person doesn't have X said degrees in these things. So tacitly, right, on the face of it, you're appealing to an illegitimate authority. Now, if they want to rebut that, they can say, no, this person is an authority for these reasons. Now they have to go and give some kind of argument for why they're an authority. There's certain sort of things that we would say we just in our culture accept as this is what it means to be an authority, right? So having a PhD, for example, you're an authority on something. Um, having experienced some event firsthand, especially over years and years, you know? Mother Teresa, to, you know, 
she was an authority on those who were impoverished in her area in Calcutta, right? She didn't have a PhD, but there's a sort of generally recognized sense of she probably knows more than most other people about this, you know? So unfortunately, it is kind of loose, and you might have to make a case for why is the person you're citing an authority? If, you want to ch if, so if that person challenges it and says, yes, this person is an authority, well, then now you just have to deal with that issue right now. Well, OK, now, are they really an authority? You have to debate that out. So unfortunately, that's just what we're left with. You know, there, isn't a, there isn't just a, a way to just undercut that completely you know, and just say, no, they're not really an authority. You know? But what we can say is, on the face of it, that person doesn't know the Hebrew language like a scholar in the in biblical languages would know it, right? So you shouldn't appeal to them when we're talking about what these, these biblical languages mean. Does that make sense, kind of? Yeah. I mean, assuming it's simple enough, you could actually go back and prove why the Hebrew is, in fact, that in, to begin with, and then not appeal to anybody at all. That'd be tough with the languages. It would be, like, yeah, that's why I would say if it's simple enough. But if it's simple right. enough, like mathematically, you could go back and justify something without needing a professor's authority in some sort of mathematical statement. You could go back and by yourself prove it, and then you could say appeal to that instead. Yeah, like math is different. Physics is different. Like those hard sciences like that, like as long as you know how to do proofs and, and things like that and you can show, look, here, this is how you do it. Well, then you can just go and show them. There's a look of skepticism on your face. Uh, because I would agree for you can show, say, the mathematical rigor of it. Like, okay, I am, it's like, it is like logic. I can show it's a valid mm -hmm. thing. But most of the time in arguments, if you're using math in some way, it's the interpretation of what does that actually yeah, yeah, mean to sure. reality that right. you're actually debating about. Yep. Or say for stats, is like it may be valid to use this method, but it's valid to use three different methods. Right. Which one is the best method to actually use? Yeah. That's kind you, of an. You'd have, have to, to scope be more of an authority on right. in that to be able to judge that kind of a thing and stuff like that. But yeah. You'd have to scope the claim, you know. It, so if you're not an authority on something, you, you pretty much have to, it's, it's going to have to be something that is fairly obviously shown to people who are not specialists in an area, you know. I, I mean, if you really know your stuff and you can make your case to someone who has more education than you, awesome. Maybe you're like a goodwill hunting, you know, and you just go to the library all the time and beat up jerk faces in bars, you know. That's possible. <laughs> So, let me check what time it is real quick. 8.53. We'll try to knock out just a couple more real quick, and then we'll stop. People have been trying to prove that Christianity is true for thousands of years, and no one has succeeded, so we need to conclude that it can't be done. Appeal to ignorance. We don't know how the universe came about, but we are working on it. One day, we will know how it happened, so you can't appeal to some supernatural cause. Okay, so the... the argument from ignorance is, because we don't know, therefore, we can, should conclude this. Because we don't know, because no one's conclusively shown that Christianity is true, uh, it can't be done. 
or because science can't explain something now, um, it will be able to explain something in the future. Well, how do you know? It might not be able to explain something in the future. That's possible. Hasty generalizations. I met a really nice Mormons before. Mormons are really nice. So therefore, Mormon, or I met a really nice Mormon before. Uh, and they're really nice. So all Mormons are really nice. It's probably a true statement. I've never met a Mormon who's, I think I've met enough Mormons to make the generalization that they're all nice. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. But every one of them I've met have been nice. I asked a Christian why he believed in God, and he said he didn't know. Christians have no, therefore, Christians have no idea uh, why they believe what they believe. Right? Hasty generalization is when you have a couple, a few examples, and you generalize to a much, much larger population that it's true of all of those members of that population or group or sample or set. Straightforward? Okay. Slippery slope. If Christians get involved in politics and our country will turn into a theocracy, we'll have, we will all have to become Calvinists or we will go to jail. There will be inquisitions and deaths by the millions so we can't let Christians get involved in politics. Right? Slippery slope is this, if this happens, then this horrible thing will happen, then this horrible thing will happen, then this horrible thing will happen, then this horrible thing will happen. Therefore, don't accept that first conclusion. Okay? It is right if you say it's, there is a probability that this might happen, right? So if you, you say, like, if we adopt this policy, it makes it more open or future to adopt X policy, Y policy, Z policy. Yes, but then you're, you're making a different kind of argument, right? Then you're making either a, uh, either a principled argument or you're making some kind of empirical argument. So maybe we'd we talk about socialism. If we adopt socialism, then these bad effects will happen. Therefore, don't accept socialism, right? If that's all we say, we're actually committing the, the fallacy. But if we say, in principle, these, these actions follow from these principles logically, and these actions follow from these principles logically, then you're not committing the, the uh, slippery slope fallacy anymore, right? You, so, or if you cite of all of these different um, case studies of all of the different socialist countries and then say, I'm not saying that it will necessarily come to this, but it's very likely, probabilistic argument, that this will come of following these principles because it's happened in all these other places. There's some kind of predictability there then you're not committing the fallacy. But then you're giving, alt you're giving reasons for why you think it, either in a principled way or in an empirical way. Does that make sense? Okay. Assumption, where are we at? I'll tell you what, we'll just, I'll send you the slide deck because I have like 70 slides. Um, and then if you guys have questions or you guys want to go more into it, we can do that, but we'll end just a few minutes early and Call it a night, is that okay? Also because I'm gonna fall asleep like standing up, so thank you.